0: This morning, Wichita, Kansas is waking up to a nightmare it thought was over. BTK has resurfaced after 25 years of silence. And good evening. We have exclusive details. A new communication that could be from the serial killer, BTK. Now, this is a story you'll only see on cake. And today's message is eerily similar to a postcard cake receipt. BTK is a cake viewer and has been for years. He has communicated with us since the 70s, and it continues today. We know he is watching, and we know he is listening. And to him we say, the message has been received and passed on.
1: The monster, as he had written in his first October 1974 letter to the Wichita Eagle and vegan newspaper, goes on. And go on it did. To satisfy the deviancy that fueled his sexual fantasies, the animalistic urge to troll, stalk, and brutally victimize lasted for three decades leaving ten dead, and the citizens of the largest city in Kansas afraid of what could be waiting inside of their homes in the light of day. Or... What may be lurking outside of them at night? The police were very reserved as they are, they continue to be to this day, with information about the case. And so a lot of it was based on rumor, but one thing that people did know was that he cut the phone cords. So when we came home, the first thing you did is check the dial tone so that you knew that at least that hadn't occurred. Um, we kept our basement door locked because another rumor was that he got in through basements, although that doesn't seem to be true. So everything we did um, was very. Um, much designed to, to protect ourselves from this kind of bogeyman. Every citizen of Wichita seemed to have had a connection to one of the murders. In the Midwest, everyone seemed to have known somebody who knew somebody. What no one seemed to know, though, was who was terrorizing neighborhoods in the city along the Arkansas River, whose M.O. was to break in, cut the phone line, and then bound, torture, and kill his victims, or PJs, as he called his projects.
0: I got this fantasy. I started working out this fantasy online. And once that potential, that person become a fantasy, I can just loop, loop it over. I lay in bed at night thinking about this person, uh, the events, and how it's going to happen. And it becomes a real, almost like a picture show. You know, I want to go ahead and produce it, direct it, and go through with it, no matter what the costs were and the consequences. Uh, it's, it was going to happen one way or another.
1: The BTK strangler, or BTK as Dennis Rader is more commonly known as led a double life of Boy Scout and Boogeyman. No one suspected this loving family man, living in the modest three-bedroom home in Park City, Kansas, to be the same serial killer preying on Wichita suburbs, very similar to the one he himself lived in.
2: He was an awesome scout leader. And like I said, personally, he is a he's a good guy. He was great to be around, excellent personality. Typically a family man when he was with his wife and his children. He was, an, he was just an all-around great guy, great personality, easy to get along with.
1: No one suspected the president of his Christ Lutheran Church congregation and former Boy Scout leader. This man who lived an intensely normal life was a brutal and sexually perverse murderer. Not his then-wife, his daughter, or his son. Not a single family member, friend, acquaintance, coworker, or neighbor sent a curious glance his way in connection to the madman behind the chilling taunts sent to the news media. Letters that blatantly demanded, how many do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper, or some national recognition? His first cry for attention to that newspaper in 1974, a two-page letter, included every detail of the killing spree, describing how he hung the 11-year-old daughter from a pipe in the basement and strangled her parents and 9-year-old brother in their bedrooms. He went on to describe what kind of knot he used on each, what clothes they wore, how he left their bodies and the souvenirs he took a young boy's radio the dad's watch he warned that he would strike again noting the code words for me will be find them torture them kill them btk between 1974 and 1991 btk sent nine messages to the news media and police letters of confessions spine-tingling attempts at poetry and horrific drawings depicting women being tortured in bondage. He even reported one of his own crimes at a 911 call he placed himself. And then, it stopped. The killings, the messages, the demands for attention, it all stopped. And BTK disappeared for 25 years. And he could have remained that way, free, undetected, gotten away with it all, if it hadn't been for that monster the monster inside Dennis Rader, whose appetite for the spotlight couldn't be controlled any longer. The oldest of four boys, Dennis Lynn Rader was born in Pittsburgh, Kansas, to parents Dorothy May and William Elvin Rader on March 9, 1945. When he was a child, the family moved to Wichita, where both parents worked long hours and paid little attention to their young children at home. Years later, Rader would go on to describe the resentment he felt towards his mother for feeling ignored by her. From a young age, he harbored sadistic fantasies about torturing, as he described, trapped and helpless women. A role his grandmother, another woman in his life, unknowingly played a part in. When Rader was eight years old, his grandma went down to the chicken coop to prepare dinner. So, down she went into the coop, with a leather shoestring swinging from her hand. Grandma tied the bird by its legs and chopped its head off with an axe. Blood squirted everywhere. Rader would later remember, my brothers and my cousins would all run away screaming. And when I watched that, it'd give me an erection. That was the moment he knew he was different from the others. And then, he would go on to torture and kill small animals while the other young boys would play dice or join in kickball games. Something
0: that's... I use it. Uh, I actually think I'm maybe possessed with demons. Uh, I was dropping on my head when I was a kid. Uh, I talked to some... Uh, theological, the Christian people, and some of those people are really strong, they actually think, well, the Bible says that, that there's demons and, and, uh, within you know, or come into you. Uh, that's the only thing I can figure out. I have, you know, uh, you know, something drove me to do this. You know, the normal people just don't do this. You can't stop it. I can't stop it. It's just, it controls me. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's like it's in
1: the drivers. Another of his favorite pastimes was playing cowboys and Indians, running around, catching one another, tying the captives up. This game also meant something different to a young Dennis Raider, inciting his fascination with bindings and square knots. Raider had said when other boys tied him up, he found the experience of being utterly helpless, erotic. And so, it was only the beginning. As a teenager, Raider experimented in acts of voyeurism, autoerotic asphyxiation, and cross-dressing, often spying on female neighbors while dressed in women's clothing. He would then masturbate with ropes or bindings tied around his arms and neck. Another formative experience in particular would go on to shape Raider's propensity for sexual deviancy. When he was just 12 years old, a teacher had humiliated Raider in the classroom. So, angry, he went around to the teacher's house later on that evening to watch her through her bedroom window, intent on fantasizing about the brutalities she deserved. As he watched his teacher through the window at night, beads of sweat trickled down his brow, and Raider tightened the rope he brought with him, tighter and tighter around his waist, imagining each inch like a cinch around her throat. By the 8th or ninth grade, Raider admitted to having sexual dreams and feelings that he knew no other young man was experiencing. He said in his own words, By that time, I knew what I was going to be. After high school, Dennis Rader attended Kansas Wesleyan University, yet dropped out only a year later, leaving with mediocre grades. In 1966, Rader served in the Air Force as a mechanic. Yet, after his brief stint ending in 1970, he returned to Wichita, where he got a job in the meatpacking department at the local IGA supermarket, where his mother was a bookkeeper. In May of the following year, Rader married a local girl named Paula Dietz, who had grown up there too, gone to the same high school, and lived just around the corner from the squad house in Park City, where the couple would soon settle. In 1979, Raider graduated from Wichita State University, where he, ironically, studied nothing other than criminal justice, earning a bachelor's degree in administration of justice. Who was this man who the monster took hold of? The man who was often seen in his white city truck with the words, Compliance Officer, Park City splashed on the side.
2: He was great to be around, excellent personality everything else is just once that compliance uniform went on it was like a split personality a different person would appear well he would just go on a big power trip, like he had a big chip on his shoulder it's like it's my way or no way like he was the top of the law enforcement in park city he was the dog catcher compliance officer I mean he made sure your lawns were mowed but he his main thing was to take care of make sure we didn't have strays running around town and so forth.
0: He took it way out of hand. Do you do you chase an animal down the street when the, all the neighborhood kids are out shooting at it with a, a tranquilizer
3: gun while the kids are running loose? No. I mean, he was nuts.
1: That was Jim Reno, a former neighbor of Dennis Raider's, describing his dislike for his neighbor, the compliance officer.
0: I never did like the guy. I mean, the best information I ever probably the best thing I ever told my wife was if he ever came up to my front door to never open it he could wait until i got home if it was so important that's why i started speaking out i heard oh he was a nice guy oh he's church door all that i knew him as a jerk the way he treated the women on the neighbor out on the block i mean he was quite rude to him he would let your dog out and then write you a ticket for your dog being loose We'd find him in the neighbor's backyard many a time, and the neighbor was gone and home, you know, they were going at work.
1: Another neighbor, Barbara Walters, remembered the time she challenged a $25 ticket that Rader issued in 1998, saying her dog, Shadow, was running loose. Barbara's lawyer would recall how Rader arrived for court more prepared than some lawyers are for murder trials. Bringing a lengthy file on Barbara's dog, Shadow, a videotape of the dog, in a notebook with numerous tabs linking the accusations to his evidence. In the end, Dennis Rader and his notebook won. Neighbors had also noticed that Rader would take special pleasure in bullying and harassing single women. One neighbor would also remember how Rader killed her dog for no reason, right in front of her horrified children.
2: One day where I used to live, we had a bunch of neighbors over, a bunch of kids over. We out in the front yard working on cars and whatnot. And the dogs across the street had the electric fence. Well, he didn't realize that. We all knew it, but he didn't. So he went to go mace the dogs to try to noose them and take them away. And the wind caught the mace, split back in his face. So instead, he just pulled out a gun and shot the dogs right there in front of the kids.
1: Dennis Rader and his wife Paula went to church each and every Sunday, a pillar of his community and a friendly face to everybody who knew him. He lived a normal life. Going to church, raising his family, and cruising the streets of his neighborhood, his mind running wild, the line between reality and fantasy blurred. And soon, the monster would take notice of a young Hispanic family that had moved into the neighborhood. He watched their patterns, when they would leave home, when they would come back, when they left for school, and when they left for work. He watched, and he waited, and then... One cold January morning, he was ready. And so, the monster gathered his tools, and BTK was born. It was the first time on that cold winter's morning outside of a quiet suburban home that Dennis Rader's fantasy to bind, torture, and kill would move into the realm of reality. And, on January 15, 1974, four members of the Otero family would witness firsthand the monster, That was Dennis Rader. The victims were father, Joseph Otero, mother, Julie Otero, as well as their nine-year-old son, Joseph Otero Jr., and their 11-year-old daughter, Josephine Otero. Their bodies would eventually be discovered by the family's three older children, who had been at school at the time of the killings. The following clip is from Dennis Rader's June 27, 2005 confession, as he describes in his own words the events of January 15, 1974. Standing before the judge with dead eyes and no emotion, Dennis Rader held nothing back. I should warn that the following may disturb some listeners.
3: Right, Mr. Rader, I need to find out more information. All right, can you tell me approximately what time of day you went there? Let's take a quick break.
1: Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, From haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Uh,
0: Somewhere between 7 and 730 this particular
3: location did you know these people
0: no that's uh no that was part of my uh i guess my what's called fantasy these people were uh, selected all right so you okay. okay
3: you were engaged in some kind of fantasy during this period of time uh, yes sir all right now when you use the term fantasy is this something you were doing for your personal pleasure uh, sexual fantasy sir i see So you went to this residence, and what occurred then?
0: Well, um, I had uh, did some uh, thinking on what I was going to do to uh, either Mrs. Otero or Josephine, and uh, basically broke into the house, or didn't break into the house. But uh, when they came out of the house, I came in and confronted the family, and then we went from there. All right. Had you planned this beforehand? To some degree, yes. Uh, after I got in the house, it, well, I lost control of it. But it, it was, you know, in the back in my mind, I had some ideas what I was going to do. Did but uh, I just, I basically panicked that first day, so. Beforehand, did you know who was there in the house? I thought Mrs. Otero and the two kids, the uh, two younger kids were in the house. I didn't realize Mr. Otero was going to be there. All right. How did you get into the house? Mr. I came through the back door. Uh, Cut the phone lines, uh, waited at the back door, had reservations about even going or just walking away. But pretty soon the door opened, and I was in. All right, so the door opened. Was it open for you, or did something? Uh, I think one of the kids, I think the uh, uh, junior, or not junior, yes, the the young girl, uh, Joseph, opened the door. He probably let the dog out because the dog was in the house at that time. All right, when you went into the house, what happened then? Well, I confronted the family, uh, pulled a pistol, uh, confronted Mr. Otero, and asked him to, uh, you know, that I was there to, basically I was uh, wanted, uh, wanted to uh, get the car, I was hungry food, I was wanted, and asked him to lie down in the uh, living room. And uh, at that time I realized that wouldn't be a really good idea, so I finally, the dog was a real problem, so I uh, asked Mr. o'carroll if he could get the dog out, so he had one of the kids put it out. And then I took him back to the bedroom. You took who back to the bedroom? Uh, the family, the bedroom, the four members. All right, what happened then? At uh, that time, I tied him up. While still holding him at gunpoint? Well, in between tying and yes. Yeah. All right, after you tied him up, what did well, uh, they started complaining about uh, being tied up, and I re- re-loosened the bonds a couple of times. Uh, tried to make Mr. Otero as comfortable as I could. Uh, apparently had a cracked rib from a car accident, so I had him put a pillow down for his head. Uh, had he put a, uh, I think he's Parker or a coat underneath him. Uh, they, uh, you know, they talked to me about. Uh, you know, giving the car and whatever money. I guess they didn't have very much money. And uh, uh, there I realized that, uh, you know, I was already, I didn't have a mask on or anything. They already could ID me. And uh, I made a a decision to go ahead and and, uh, put him down, I guess, or strangle All right. What did you do to Joseph Otero Sr.? Joseph Otero? Yeah, Joseph Otero Sr., Mr. Otero, the father. I uh, put a plastic bag over his head, and then some cords, and then tightened it. And this was in the bedroom? Yes, sir.
3: Did he, in fact, uh, suffocate and die as a result
0: of this? Not right away. No, sir, he didn't. What happened? Uh, well, after that, I uh, I did miss this Otero. Uh, I had never strangled anyone before, so I really didn't know how much pressure you had to put on a person or how long it would take. But was she also tied up there in the yes, bedroom? Uh-huh. Yes, yeah, both their hands and their feet were tied up. She was on the bed. Where were the children? Uh, well, uh, Josephine was on the bed and uh, Junior was on the floor this time. So we're, we're talking first of all about Joseph Otero. So you would put
3: the bag over his head and tied it, mm-hmm. and he did not die right away. Can you tell me what happened in regards to Joseph uh, He
0: moved over real quick like and I think tore a hole in the bag. And I could tell that he was having some problems there. But at that time, the, the whole family just went, uh, they went panicked on me. So I, I worked pretty quick. I got what Mrs. Did you, o- you worked pretty quick. Well, what I mean, I, I I, I uh, strangled <clears throat> Mrs. Otero. And she went out or passed out. I thought she was dead. She passed out. And I strangled uh, uh, Josephine. She passed out. Or I thought she was dead. And, uh, and then I went over and uh, put a... Uh, and then uh, put a bag on uh, uh, Junior's head, and uh, and then, uh, if I remember right, uh, Mrs. Otero came back. Uh, she came back and... Uh, Sir, let me ask you about Joseph Otero, Sr. It indicated Sr. indicated he had torn a hole in the bag, mm-hmm. and what did you do with him then? I put another bag over it, or either that or a... I recollect. I think I put a uh, either a cloth or a T-shirt or something over it over his head and in a bag, another bag, Did and then su- it down. Did he subsequently die? Well, yes. I mean, I, I mean, I was I didn't just stay there and watch him. then I was moving around the room. But. All right. So you indicated you strangled Mrs. Otero after you had done this. Is that correct? No, I went back and strangled her again, and that that finally killed her at that time. So
3: this is in regards to count two. You
0: <laughs> first of all put the bag
3: over Joseph Otero's head, mm-hmm. and he tore a hole in the bag. Mm-hmm. Then
0: you went ahead. Did you strangle Mrs. Otero then, okay. or did you go first back? all? First of all, Mr. Otero was strangled, or a bag put over his head and strangled. Then I thought he was going down, and I went over and strangled Mrs. Otero, and I thought she was down. Then I strangled uh, uh, Josephine while she was down, and then I went over to Junior and put the bag on his head. After that, Mrs. Otero woke back up, and uh, you know she was pretty upset and what's going on. So I came back and uh, at that point in time strangled her uh, for for a death strangle at that time. With your hands or what? No, with a cord, with a with a rope, and. Uh, then I, uh, I think at that point in time, I redid Mr. Otero, put the bag over his head, uh, went over, and then took Junior. Oh, oh, before that, she asked me to uh, to, to uh, save her son. So I actually had taken the bag off. And then I was really upset at that point in time. So basically, when Mr. Otero was down, Mrs. Otero was down, I went ahead and, and uh, took uh, J- uh, Junior, I put another bag over his head, and took him to the other bedroom at that what, time. What did you do then? Um, put a bag over his head, I put a uh, cloth over his head, a t-shirt, and a bag so he couldn't tear a hole in it. And uh, he boy died from that. And then when I went back, uh, Josephine had woke back up. So what did you do then? And I took her to the basement and eventually uh, hung her. Are you hung her in the basement? Yes, sir. Did you do anything else at that time? Yes, I, uh, I had some sexual fantasies. But that was uh, after she was
1: hung. That was Dennis Rader describing in sickening detail his first murders. Standing before the packed courtroom with no emotion, he relived the entire experience as if it had just happened the day before. With a chilling air of pride in what he had done, Dennis Rader showed no remorse. His actions were totally robotic, the words coming from an empty shell of a man who had given his entire life over to his sick obsessions. His fantasy life controlled him bubbling beneath the surface for decades. Dennis Rader took pride in his stomach-turning accomplishments. He devoted his life to his projects. His cunning ability to blend in had allowed him to evade capture for so long. But it would be his ego and one final cry for attention that would eventually lead to his undoing. Thanks for listening to The Unforgivables. For more information, visit theunforgivables.com. If you've enjoyed this episode please feel free to leave a review or a 5-star rating, it really does help.